whose lives count as lives. Founded around the death of Trevon Martin in 2012, Black Lives Matter is a movement that understands that the, the strength of our diversity as a nation is predicated on the unique strengths of our individual racial and ethnic communities, which add to the strength of our nation as a whole. BLM also asserts itself as a movement that will not go quietly into the night, thank God, but instead is insistent that the status quo of government systems that are designed for many of the tragic outcomes that we are currently experiencing are unacceptable. For African Americans, there's a deep desire to be a part of the American story but in a way that calls us to our highest and best selves, people of love and inclusiveness. Success is not just when systems stop killing unarmed black people and stand your ground laws are ruled unconstitutional, but it's also when black transgender men and women no longer fear harassment or brutality from anybody. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that, like others before us, our view of national identity is rooted in a model of scarcity and comfort for some. There are some who act as if there is room for only one American experience. And adhering to that story, which we talked about last week, it gets slightly modified. You know, it's just plain easier to do that. But the leaders of the BLM movement have said, stop killing us. Don't be afraid of us. Most have organized, mobilized, and advocated in ways that embody the values of collaboration, love, spirituality, humor, intelligence, and justice that affirm that there are many American stories. In the BLM, there is joy and relationship building, dancing and historical analysis, collaborative relationships and community engagement. There is trauma, but there's also triumph, education and commitment to nonviolence, laughter, and deep spirituality. Perhaps most importantly, there is a deep desire to be a part of the American story in a way that affirms the integrity of all people, of all lives. Yes, of course, all lives matter. But there is no serious question about the value of the life of a young white child. Sadly, there is a serious question between gang violence and governmental systems that kill or incarcerate about the value of the life of a little brown or a little black child. So those who are experiencing the pain and trauma of black experience in this country don't want their rallying cry to be watered down by a generic feel-good catchphrase. Why is it important to say black lives matter? because historically they have not. Yeah. Mm. 
when I shared my support with you of Black Lives Matter, I got the most feedback I've ever gotten of anything I've said in this congregation. <laughs> and I regret the loss of some friends along the way of being a supporter. One posted, I cannot be a friend of anyone who supports Black Lives Matter. And they had posted some video on their page on Facebook that was extreme and said that they couldn't support Black Lives Matter because of these extreme videos that they found that were essentially the same as calling Christianity the Ku Klux Klan. You know, KKK is Christian, right? And so what they do is what I do, and it's just not true. And so I continue to support this movement that I think offers hope for our world and for our life. And I am happy to stand with Jesus in doing that. And I say that, <laughs> I say that, um, the scripture is full of Jesus and stories of him reaching out to the communities that people weren't listening to. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus consistently says that women's lives matter because they didn't. Jesus continually says Samaritans' lives matter because they didn't. And I found this wonderful cartoon. If we have it, it'll go up there now. Not really a cartoon, but here's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount saying, Blessed are you who are poor. And there's the crowd saying, Blessed are we all, Jesus. <laughs> he said, Poor for a reason. Blessed are those who hurt. All lives matter. Y'all, Jesus is not disputing with you that all lives matter, but Jesus is saying, You need to pay attention right now that blessed are the poor. Right. Blessed are the Samaritans. So when I say blessed is Black Lives Matter, I say it because that's who we need to say it for in our country at this time and this place. And I'm glad that Jesus showed me how, and the gospel stories shows all of us how to do just that. But our country has this legacy, this legacy of exceptionalism, which came with the Puritans across the seas to us, that said we're exceptional and based their exceptionalism on their faith, and on their whiteness. And we've been suffering for it ever since. Because right there in the very beginning, slavery was welcomed and preached as a norm. And we've been suffering from that ever since that occurred. It didn't just occur in America. It started and came overseas. You know, they're escaping oppression so they can then oppress others, right? Escaping one form of oppression so that they can then be the oppressors. And I think our scripture story this morning has something to say about that. For those of you who didn't know the Spanish, I hope you followed along on the English in your bulletin. But that scripture story of Exodus and the brief little synopsis today that God heard the slaves and said, slaves' lives matter, and God took them into freedom. And then as the story goes on, the story goes on, and in the wilderness, they then had to stay long enough to become a people. And after they were in the wilderness long enough to become a people, then God said, there's the promised land that I have for you, this place for you to come and find home. And unfortunately, they could only hear that as previous slaves who knew that there was only us and them, who knew that there were slaves and oppressors, and if they were going to go in their new home, they weren't going to be the slaves again. And so what they did was wipe out those who were living there. This is important for us because this part of the story of faith, this part of chosenness to be a light unto the nations, that we have exceptional knowledge no one else can have, and if they don't have it, then they are less than us. And as less than us, then they 
aren't worthy of even being alive. They can be enslaved, they can be killed. This is a part of the story, and sometimes in your life, you know you've been hurt so much and you can't imagine a world any different way other than to kill or be killed. Even if you've been in the wilderness for 40 years, trust in God. When you come into the promised land, it might be a different story. I ask a question today because it's hit me a couple of times in my life. How do we find freedom without sowing the seeds of the next oppression? How do we work for today without making slaves in some other form in our society and with us? I remember the occasion years ago working nationally for advocacy for LGBT folks, and the United Inda bill was trying to be passed. And there was a war between people who all wanted freedom for everyone, but there were freedom seekers who thought we could leave our transgender folks behind another decade or generation in order for LGB folks to go ahead and get it now. They were willing to sow the seeds of another generation of oppression for some of our own family in order to take the step for part of the group at this point in time. And we fought long and hard, and my group ended up supporting the United Inda Act, which included the whole community of folks be passed. I saw it again when I celebrated that in Arizona, of all places, they passed a wonderful LGBT-affirming piece of legislation in Arizona. And at the same time, posted two hateful pieces of legislation around immigrants in Arizona. And I thought, can I celebrate my own safety and freedom while we sow the seeds of the oppression of another? Can I leave the slavery I've been involved with without having to put someone else in slavery Amen. because I think it's the promised land? But our country continues to do that with this chosenness, with this exceptionalism. We did manifest destiny, y'all. Remember that from history? We are so exceptional that anyone in our way just gets slaughtered because it's our destiny to go from coast to coast. And then we did the Monroe Doctrine, not just coast to coast, but to Asia. You know, these are policies of the United States because we are exceptional and we know better than anyone else what their country needs to look like and how it needs to run. And we should tell you because we put our light on a bushel and we know what it's supposed to say to you. Goodness. There it is in Scripture. But I believe Jesus said we are supposed to do it a different way. Jesus emptied self in order to become one of us in order to be a servant. Right. That's different than telling everyone else how to do their lives. That's different than telling people who's in and who's out. That's saying, I am here to serve you and help you learn more about love. Is that the Jesus we follow? Is that the Jesus? I wonder when I watch the news. Michelle Alexander said, racism is highly adaptable. So too are the constructs that support it. So which one thing is undone, another thing is birthed. Then another thing is undone, then another thing is birthed. And she goes through the history of the United States from being chattel to being a commodity to being called subhuman once you got the church involved in it and said, not even human. And then being hypersexualized so that you would be feared, dangerous. Then from dangerous to being criminals. This is the journey of black America. This is the journey of what's happened in our country because of how we were formed and started and this exceptionalism we believed in that said we had the right to do something like this. You know, so every time it gets taken away, it gets put back in. With the black codes, Jim Crow, lynching, all forms 
redlining, where you could only get a loan in the right neighborhood if you were an African-American. The drug war and mass criminalization. It's interesting because sometimes I want to think this is just legacy. It's not new stuff that's happening now. We're just still overcoming from generation to generation of the sin that we were part of. But it's still now. It's still right now. And I'll share with you two quotes that uh, came from the Nixon years. This is from Elrickman, one of uh, Nixon's uh, cabinet. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So when you hear drug war and language about drug war and drug language, you need to hear it with this inception, this beginning of what it was about. From the same administration, Haldeman simply said this, President Nixon emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Racism is highly adaptable. It keeps getting reborn in new constructs. And we have to be careful that we are still able to see when it's born again. Have you ever noticed that when black people gather, there is loud laughter and loud talking and palpable joy? It doesn't matter where it is, if it's in a church or on the street at a dinner table, out clubbing or perhaps on a train in Napa Valley. We are a noisy people. <laughs> we All are. Right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that we are noisy is because we know we're free. And that we enjoy life, even through the struggles. You see, the God we know and whose image we are created and who informs our faith is a God of freedom. And we know that we were created to be free. So we're, we live life loud and rejoicing. And for this, I no longer apologize. All right. All right. And it's also the reason I almost left Resurrection about 20 years ago. This were, was a place where I didn't feel like I belonged and I felt that if my noise, if and how I experienced God, it wasn't welcomed here. So I started worshiping at Resurrection back in 1981. There were maybe 10 African-Americans who were worshiping here at that time. It was a very different worship experience than you are experiencing today. But you see, I, I grew up in the black church. 
I grew up in the Black Baptist Church, <laughs> which is very different than the White, White Baptist, Baptist Church, Church. <laughs> <laughs> or what we, we did here at Resurrection. You see, in black families and in black church, we have never understood the God of exceptionalism. As we know, not just believe that all people are created, chosen, and sacred to God. We've never understood the God who would affirm bondage of any sort of anything that God had created. We don't understand a God that would justify harm to another human being. So we teach our children that what other people say to you, what they do and cause you to endure, does not testify to your inferiority, but to other people's hatred and their fear. We strive to, perform, uh, uh, to provide a firm foundation on which to stand in the midst of the absurdities of black life. Like, stand your ground laws without being overcome by the absurdity. It's why we teach our children that the only thing that is greater than themselves is the God who created them. In black Baptist church, as it is in black families, it is noisy. From the music to the prayers to the sermon, it is alive and loud and spirit-filled. After being here at Resurrection, I missed, I missed some aspects of black church. I missed the affirmation of the struggle. I missed the noisiness. I missed the assurance of one day where a pastor would say, turn to your neighbor and say, one day. <laughs> May not be today, <laughs> but one day all will be well and all will be free. Again, in body and in spirit. And in spirit. I had reached a place where my spiritual well was empty. And I needed it desperately to be filled. So I was contemplating going back to black church. It was a February. The Gospel Ensemble had invited Anthony Bell, uh, an African-American singer, to come and sing at the evening concert. And he was singing in worship as well. It was 9 o'clock. I remember sitting in the, the stairwell next to the door. It was over at Decatur. As Anthony Bell began to play and sing, I began to cry. Because he played and he sang as if he had come to worship at a black church. He played and sang until spirit was free in the building. Or as we say in black church, he sang and played till his soul got happy. I was struggling with and praying about do I stay or do I go? That morning, I'd actually ask for a sign. 
if I should stay, I needed a sign. Anthony Bell sang a song of freedom. He sang, I believe I could fly. Mark is going to bless us with that in just a moment. But Anthony filled my well that morning. And what I came away with was I needed to bring with me what I needed to stay full. So no, I worship noisy. I worship in and through the truth and the freedom that feeds my spirit. So I will say amen to a scripture. And I will pray along in spirit when somebody else prays. And I will vocalize affirmation when I say to Troy, preach. and I will dance when the music moves me because this is my home and I'm free to be me here because I choose to be free here I'm free to know and to worship the God of my understanding I could not go on That life was nothing but an awful song But now I know the meaning of true love I'm leaning on the everlasting arms So if I can see it I can do it if I can believe it. There's nothing to it. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day. Spread my wings and fly away. I believe I can soar. I see me running through an open door. I believe I can fly. I believe I can fly, I believe I can fly. Here at at Resurrection Church, we've been in a 45-year experiment of love and action. Yes. A 45-year experiment of what it means to be God's people in this place as we hear God calling us to be. Creating a kingdom that doesn't look like it might look in other places. We come when we're hurt. We come when we're suffering. We've made it through flood. We've made it through fire when they burn crosses on our front yard. We've made it through AIDS. And we are here still 45 years experimenting with love and action.
Our denomination was asked a question six years ago at our general conference in Chicago. Um, James Forbes, Reverend Dr. James Forbes of Riverside United Methodist Church in, Riverside Church in New York, said, what does it mean, MCC, that after all this time, after all your suffering, after all your praying, after all your work building communities and people and saving souls and lives, what does it mean after all this time, finally, the question is starting to be asked, for which you Maybe the answer. He was talking about marriage equality at that time. I find his question even more compelling today. What does it mean as we work for justice for everyone? What does it mean as we call out those who need to be named, those who need to know that they matter? What does it mean for us that we've been doing it so long that finally at this point in time, the questions being asked from so many places, how do we create such a kingdom? that we might be in this grand experiment of 45 years of love and action. One of the answers to that very question. Do we believe we can fly? Yeah. If the world ever needed us, it needs us now. Do we believe we can fly? <laughs> All right, let's fly, Resurrection.